Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to welcome you back to the program again today and tell you that we are continuing our study on the seven I am's of Jesus. There are seven times in the Gospel of John that John said, Jesus said, I am. They're very significant. As I really begin to dig around in these, they really begin to just really bless me. We dealt with already, I am the bread of life. And last week, uh, we began to deal with this segment called, I am the light of the world. And last week, what we showed you was that in John chapter 8, Jesus comes on the scene and talks to a woman caught in adultery. And he says to her, uh, she's caught in adultery in the very act. Now, uh, uh, let, me, let me just say this, though, before we get into unpacking these, uh, uh, these, these pictures today, that if you've missed any of these uh, programs and you'd like to go back and see what we said about the other I Am's, you can certainly do that by going to our YouTube channel, because everything we have aired to date is uh, archived there on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you'd like to just get the audio portions of these programs, you can go to our podcast and get it on iTunes, or you can get it from uh, your RSS feed from your Android. Uh, the easiest way to do any of that is simply to go to my website at linhouse.com, and that address is on the screen. And there are icons there of YouTube, of the uh, little robot-looking thing for Android, or the little insignia for Apple's iTunes. And if you'd like, you can just simply tap on them, go to there, and you can get these programs and listen to them or watch them at your leisure. We encourage you to tell your friends about it. Share them. They're free. And uh, you can subscribe to them, and every time that we upload something new, they will send you an email and tell you there's a new program up or there's a new audio up. I think you'd be really, really blessed to do that. We have so much stuff out there on those mediums that would be a blessing to you. And I want to get back in the Word today, but I just wanted to let you know that so that if you uh, perhaps would like to go back and review some things, or you like what you hear today and think, man, I wish I would have recorded that, uh, you can go back and get them on YouTube, and you can watch them at your leisure. Uh, in John chapter 8, let's go back there first, and then I'm going to come into John chapter 9. But the John chapter 8, and we talked about this some last week, Jesus let me just read it. It says, and, and when Jesus went under the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was caught in adultery uh, in the very act. And now Moses in the law commanded us, that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Now just please notice that these people are not interested in helping this woman. They are interested in accusing Jesus. You see, because people in religion are not really interested in helping other people get set free. They're just interested in getting rid of sometimes and making accusation and condemnation because I think sometimes what it does is that they can find somebody worse shape than them and keeps the heat off of them. Because interestingly enough, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act, but I'm always questioning if she was caught 
in the very act, where is the dude she was committing adultery with? Because the last time I heard, it took two to commit adultery. Now she was, it took it, she was caught in the very act. I submit to you that these Pharisees and religious dudes all must have known her address because they somehow found her and brought her to Jesus, not to help her, but to accuse her. Now Jesus responds to their accusation in verse number 6, but Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. Now what we begin to show you last week is that what happens is, is that when Jesus stooped down, I love this, he lowered himself. Uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the Bible says in Romans 8, especially in the message uh, translation of the Bible, in Romans 8 around verse 2 or 3, that God did not take the issue of sin lightly, but he took it seriously and went for the juggler when he didn't deal with it as something insignificant or unimportant, but he, he, he took on the human condition. He literally came and lowered himself and stooped down and took on the human condition so that he could be tested in every way like as we are yet without sin, so that Romans 8 says he condemned sin in the flesh. And the Message Bible said he went for the juggler in his own son. He went for the juggler vein of sin and destroyed and brought sin to a place of judgment in the person of Jesus Christ. So when, I, when he's stooping down, what this to me is such a powerful picture of. Once again, I'm not saying that this did not historically happen, but these stories to me are so multi-layered, and if you've watched our program any amount of time, you can see that there are so many hidden treasures locked up in these scriptures that are far greater than just one story that's picked out to tell us. But it really pictures all of us who in the condition of sin have been brought, and we are literally guilty of death and stoning and judgment. But I don't know about you this, today, but I am thankful he stooped down and took on him the human condition and identified with me and, and destroyed sin in the flesh that he might be to us a faithful high priest who can succor us during the time of our temptation. Because he doesn't just deal with our sin to bring forgiveness. The next thing he does is with his finger he begins to write in the sand. And we talked a little bit about a lot of stuff last week. But to me, that's very highly symbolic. Again, he takes his finger and writes in the sand. A couple things are happening here. Number one, the sand, to me, speaks of the sand of our human existence. We were made from the dust of the ground. And in the first man, God formed him of the dust of the ground, and then he brought into him the breath of life, and he merged the human and the divine. God filled his lungs with the breath of heaven and gave Adam a breath that gave him life. So he brought together in the first man the human and the divine, the earthy and the heavenly, the natural and the spiritual. And I think what you see happening here in John 8 is that when Jesus stoops down with his finger, he begins to write in the sand. That to me powerfully pictures a merging of the human and the divine. That Jesus literally in our struggles and in our temptation stoops down, identifies with what we are, and then writes in the sand of our human existence. We could say he wrote his signature there. 
He wrote his own name. He signed his nature. He put his nature in us. Uh, another way it could be said is he says, and after this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith God, I will write my laws in their hearts, and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Hallelujah. And so when he writes on the tables of our heart, he's not just saying, you're excused, keep on committing adultery, keep on living the lifestyle. He says, no, I lowered myself. I identified with your sin, and I took care of the payment for sin. But not only did I take care of the payment for sin, but I wrote in your heart that which would empower you to go and sin no more. I don't think Jesus is just giving her a commandment here when he's saying, go and sin no more. I think what he's simply saying is, I'm going to write on the fleshly tables of your heart in the sand of your human existence, I'm going to write my nature. I'm going to write my name. I'm going to write my law on your heart. And then I'm going to impart something to you that's going to be able to lift you up out of the condition that you're in. And so it says, it goes on to say that, uh, that so when they continued asking him, then the next thing he did, we shared some of this last week, but with just a little bit of review. It says, and, and then and when they continued asking him, verse 7, John 8, he lifted up himself. And he, and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him cast first a stone at her. Now what happens is, is that the next thing he does is he lifted up himself. To me, this powerfully pictures again his redemptive work. You say, how is that? Because he says in John's Gospel again, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. This spake he concerning what death he would die. That's not a praise and worship scripture. We, we so brutally misquote that scripture. We'll get up in a song service and say, come on folks, let's lift Jesus up tonight. Let's lift him up because he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. That's really out of context. That's like saying, come on, let's crucify Jesus again this evening. Let's kill the Lord again tonight. That's really the wrong context. What he was talking about was the death he would die. This said he concerning what death he would die. And so when he lifted up himself in this chapter, I think what he's picturing to us is that it's not that sin is not important. It is important to understand that he laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that, that, that he's not just circumventing her problem, he's talking about the remedy for her. And then he turns around to these holy dudes who think you're saved on the basis of your performance and on the basis of how holy you are. He said, let he that has no sin cast the first stone at her. And man, they begin to drop them stones one after the other because probably half of them had already been to her house and they're the ones that knew where she lived. But they begin to drop those stones and begin to be convicted by their conscience. And the Bible goes on to say Jesus was left alone. Because when you start to begin to preach like this, all the accusers start to leave Jesus. And the woman standing in the midst, to me, powerfully symbolizes she's standing in the midst of Jesus because all the crowd has left and there's nothing left here but Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. You say, well, what's the significance with that, Dr. Howes? Well, the Scripture says this. He said, or if any man be in Christ. He is a new creation. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So she was standing in the midst, and there was no other people there, and Jesus was left alone. I think it's symbolizing she was standing in the midst of Him, hallelujah, where there is no condemnation. And when Jesus turns around, He says to her, Woman, where are those thy accusers? And she said, I don't have any, Lord. He said, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Now I've got to tell you that John chapter 5, verse 45 declares, it declares this, it says that Moses is your accuser. He said, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, whom you serve. So they're coming here with the accusations of Moses and the Mosaic law. And when Jesus goes down through this process of stooping down, lowering himself, identifying with my human condition, becoming what I am so I can become what he is, taking the finger of the divine and putting it in the sand of my human existence to write his law on my heart, lifting up himself as the payment for my sin, and then standing back and say, where are your accusers? She said, I don't have any, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn thee, go in sin no more. And then it's in the heels of that that he says, neither do I condemn thee. That verse 12 says, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. It is on the heels of him declaring, neither do I condemn thee. Moses accused you. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. Jesus Christ is not the prosecuting attorney. He is your defense counsel. He is your advocate before the Father. That's such good news to me. Colossians chapter 2 says that when Jesus was crucified and lifted up, the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, He nailed it to the tree. The handwriting of ordinance that was against us, he nailed it to the cross. I'm talking about the handwriting of words. That's the law that he put the handwriting on the tree and nailed it to the tree. And then it says, and having spoiled principalities and powers. Another translation is saying, and having disarmed principalities and powers. Because see, the weapon that he took from the enemy in Colossians chapter 2 there was the weapon of the law that is used to condemn you, so that you can stand with boldness and declare from Isaiah, hallelujah, no weapon formed against me can prosper. What was the weapon the enemy uses more than anything else is the weapon of the law to bring accusation, and just like he did this woman. And he uses religious people many times to do that so that you literally, they're not trying to help this woman, they want to stone her to death. They want to pass a sentence of judgment on her. And Jesus is a Savior. And He comes on the scene and says, But neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. But once again, He's empowering her not to continue in the same sin that is, is destroying her, but that He might give her the light of life. In other words, the problem is not necessarily that we don't know the rules. The problem is that we need to have a life that works in us so that we have the light of life and it's in the heels of him saying, Neither do I condemn thee, 
Then he says, I'm the light of the world. And again, Colossians chapter 2 tells you that the weapon he took out of the hand of the enemy was the weapon of condemnation. And then Isaiah prophesies and says, no weapon formed against you can prosper. And any tongue that rises up against you in judgment, literally, or condemnation, you will utterly condemn because your righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. In other words, we don't walk in condemnation, and that was the light that he was bringing here, is that this law of Moses can point out your sin, but it can't impart to you a grace and a righteousness that will cause you to reign in life, because the Scripture tells us, I believe it is in Romans 6, it says, because of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, we reign in life. See, grace does not empower you to sin. It empowers you to reign in life. As a matter of fact, grace is not what causes sin regardless of popular opinion. Grace is the antidote for it. For he says where sin abounds, that's where grace will superabound. Hyper, hooper, that's the Greek word we use for hyper, is the, is the Greek word hooper there. It's, well, it's hyper grace. Hyper grace will cure hyper sin. Now I know people abuse some of this, but the real grace of God will empower you not to sin. And so it's in the heels of that that he says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Now, now let me just see if I can begin to unpack the next part, because he goes into chapter 9, and uh, he says, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now see, to me, this is a stupid oxymoron question. Who did sin, this man or his parents? Now, you'd have to know that, first of all, you might would say, you know, what did his parents do wrong? But how good in the world could you say, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because if this man sinned, excuse me, <coughs> he had to sin before he was born. Now that's just stupid. But see, when you're under law, you're always on a sin hunt, and you're not on a righteousness hunt. It depends on what you're looking for. But that's the whole mentality here again, is he's switching the paradigm. The I am's of Jesus is the contrast to what they thought was the light. They thought Moses was. They thought the law was. But he said, there's one that accuses you, even Moses, but do not think I will accuse you to the Father. And he goes on to say here then, you know, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Law brings condemnation, but grace brings an empowerment and an enlightenment it's a divine, and Jesus in the midst of the heels of saying that says, I am the light of the world. So we start down then into this next story right on the heels of that. And they're asking, who, who, was, who, who sinned? This man or his parents? We're on a sin hunt. We've got to find out where the problem's at. And Jesus answered, neither have this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here he is again saying, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now once again, almost a repeat of some of the similar things of the prior chapter, 
is that his response to the blindness of this man, and I could say concerning this man who was born blind, it speaks to me of the whole Adam family that was born blind. We were all born. Once I was blind, the old songwriter said, I saw the light, I saw the light. I used to be in darkness, but now I see. I, I once was blind, but now I see. Hallelujah, I think that's powerful. But he's saying to them, we were all born blind. And Jesus was about to touch the blindness of this man because literally, if you really want to connect this to who sinned, it goes all the way back to Adam's fall, and sin was conveyed upon the entire human family because of the sin of one man. But now there's another man on the scene, and it's the man Christ Jesus, and Romans 5 says one man brought sin on the entire human family, but the other man brought righteousness. Here's how it says it in the message. It says, here it is in a nutshell, Romans 5. He said, here it is in a nutshell. One man did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, and another man did it right and got us out of it. But more than just get us out of trouble, he got us into a life, a life that goes on and on and on. So you see, what he's saying here is, is that, that yes, sin brought blindness to the whole human family. But what Jesus was about to do was he was about to take once again the clay. Remember in the prior story, Jesus stooped down with his finger, he wrote in the sand. Well, in this story, he takes the clay. Now remember, what was man made from? The dust or the clay of the red earth. And then he takes the spittle and puts the spittle in the clay. He mixes the divine, hallelujah, he takes the divine spittle of God and puts it in the sand of our human existence and begins to bring back the substances that he created man from the first place. And that was out. Yeah, in other words, he's taking raw materials. Yeah, hallelujah. He could, I mean, it, even in the literal interpretation of this scripture, he, he probably took a lump of red clay, rolled it together like a ball, and put the spit of God's nature, his own divine nature in it, and rolled it together and literally created a new body part called an eyeball put it in there. That's very possible that he could have done that. But what I'm after is the spiritual significance of this again, is he takes the sand of human existence and the spittle of the divine, and he mixes those two together. And he mixes the human and the divine, and, and, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And then he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Now this is an interesting word to me. He sent him to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now this word sent is the Greek word apostello, where we get our Greek word apostle from. And I just hear the Lord saying to some apostle who's watching me today, what God is wanting to do is bring folk who've been blinded by a religious system, who've been brought up under a condemnation, wrong covenant, and send them to an apostolic pool where they're going to be able to wash their eyes from all of this condemnation and be able to come seeing, hallelujah, I believe there's some real apostles that God wants to raise up in this hour that are going to bring people to a different kind of a pool, to an apostolic pool that's not always bringing their sin to their remembrance or saying, who sinned, this man or his mother, but they're going to bring him to a fountain that flows 
that can begin to bring light to the eyes of people. I'm telling you, I believe we are living in an hour when real apostles, I'm talking about new covenant apostles and prophets, are going to begin to bring people to an apostolic pool where they can wash their eyesight of all of this condemnation. It's in the whole setting of that that Jesus said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Because what they're going to do is bring people back to a place where they're not just looking at their own failures and their own sins, but they're going to look at Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, and they're going to begin to focus on what He did to redeem me. And our eyes are going to begin to be open not to who we are in in Adam, but to who we are in Christ, and the blindness is going to leave, and we're going to stand and say, once I was in darkness, but I saw the light. Hallelujah. And when you begin to see that light, you're going to find that you've been to an apostolic pool. There's a whole lot of stuff that was, uh, you know, that could be said here, but you know, uh, they, then they come, you know, to the, the Pharisees, they're, they're going to gather him up, and they're going to get his parents, and uh, they're accusing his parents, and and his parents said, you know, because they're afraid they're going to put them out of the synagogues. Because when you start preaching a message, sometimes of the grace of God, that don't go along with the religious criticisms and condemnation of that day. Sometimes they'll put you out of their synagogues. But his parents said, listen, he is of age. Let him speak for himself. And they're accusing Jesus of being a sinner, saying things like, we know that this man is a sinner. And then there's others that are saying, well, God don't hear sinners. You know, to be able to uh, open the eyes of the blind. Of course, we've used that scripture out of context of people say, well, God don't hear a sinner's prayer. The only place that that's even mentioned is here in John chapter 9. And it's not God saying He doesn't hear sinners. It's scribes and Pharisees saying, we know now that God heareth not sinners. And they're accusing Jesus of being a sinner. I want to tell you, if you're sitting there watching me and you're a sinner, God's anxious to hear from you. He wants you to talk to Him. He wants to hear from you. He wants you to begin to speak to Him. Don't stay away from Him. Draw near. And I think that's one of the things that's happening here is He was saying to them, listen, this blind man says to them, look, I don't know who this guy is, but all I can tell you is that I, I saw a man. I came into an encounter with a man. Once I was blind... But all I can see and all I can tell you is that, you know, uh, I, I can only give you my testimony of what God has done in my life. And, and, and they literally are ready to throw them out of the temple. And, and they accuse him here in verse 27. But he answered them, I have told you already and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciple worrying about him following Jesus? And he said, they reviled him and said, thou art, thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And the man answered and said unto them, well, hearing is a marvelous thing then, that you know not from whence he is, and yet he opened my eyes. Now, I'm telling you, he said, you all may not know who he is, but I know who he is, and that's his name is Jesus. Man, we're out of time. Uh, take a moment, call that number on the screen, sow the most generous seeds you can into the ministry to help us keep on the air. If you can't do that, go to the website. Also, there is a place where you can give via credit card or debit card, or you can send a check and money order to uh, the address that will come up on the screen. Thank you for being a partner with this ministry, helping us take the gospel around the world. God bless you. 
The word repentance means to change your mind. The message of John the Baptist and of Jesus was to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is accessed by a change in our thinking. If you are in outer darkness, there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That reality is not always out in the distant future. It is in people's lives right now. One simple mind shift can move you out of darkness and weeping and into light and rejoicing. God wants to wipe all tears from our eyes and replace our weeping with joy.